Good morning, ladies. Thank you. That was lovely. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, you are worthy of your glory. You are God Almighty. Right now, we just pray that you'll help us to understand as we read your word. We pray that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Helen, Dr. Helen Rosevere, she was a medical missionary to the Belgium Congo during the 1950s. We've talked about her before. She served there during the 50s and 60s. And she was interviewed about her ministry and the suffering that she endured as a result of the Simba uprising in 1964. She tells the story of how she spent five months in captivity. She had been severely beaten and raped. And while she was there, two rebel soldiers came for her and escorted her to a house where some Greek commercial merchants and their families were being held prisoner. She was needed to help a pregnant woman that was seven months pregnant and in great pain. She said she went into the room where she estimated there to be about 80 people, people that knew her. She had been their doctor for years, and yet none of them would look at her. Their eyes were downcast, and they were all in great distress. She immediately began to pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? What should I do? What should I do? and she sensed God beginning to tell her. She figured that there were five different languages represented in the room. Her captors knew two. They did not know English and they did not know Greek. So she began to talk to her patient. She says, does it hurt here? And then she would translate it into Swahili and then she would translate it into French. And then she would say it in English with the instruction that it was to be translated into Greek. She did not know Greek. She'd say, I'm going to give you some medicine. And then she would translate that in French and then in Swahili, and then she'd say it in English, which was then translated in Greek. The rebel soldiers presumed that she was the saying the same thing each time and that she was just talking medical talk. But in English, she began to give the gospel. She began to talk to them about Jesus. She began to talk to them about how he had died for, for them. And then she said she led in a very simple, childlike prayer of faith. And she said she could hear the amens crossing the room. She says they had been listening and following along in their distress. When she was finished, the room was filled with people looking at her and smiling at her and wanting to shake her hand. She said all these years I'd preached to them and they never wanted to listen. But now that they could see I had suffered more than they, now they were willing. She had suffered greatly. She had an audience and was ready to give an account for the hope that was within her, and they listened with new ears. Why is unjust suffering so fundamental to Christianity? Why does the gospel actually seem to spread when it occurs? What should our attitude be toward unjust suffering? And what about the less physical types, those things that we're seeing and becoming more common in the United States? Things like mocking and blaspheming and boycotting. 
What should our attitude be about those? How should we respond? Well, our topic, <clears throat> if you've done the homework this past week, was on, <clears throat> excuse me, adorned with the beauty of unjust suffering, which is something that we haven't really studied before. <clears throat> so what I thought we would do this morning is try to get a basic overview of the topic unjust suffering. Now, if you did the reading, you would have known in the Bible verses that you were continually seeing the word suffering. It was mentioned numerous times in the passages that you were to read. Now, a good exercise when you see something like that happen is to take that repeated word and run it through those six investigative questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. Ask, all right, what is the suffering? Who is suffering? Why are they suffering? When are they suffering? And kind of work through that. We're going to attempt to do some of that today. Now, the whole Bible addresses suffering, but we're going to zoom in on what Peter has to say, or part of what Peter has to say. We're not going to be able to cover it all. So today's lesson, not exhaustive, but at least it'll give us a, a basis on what unjust suffering is. All right, so let's start with the question, what is unjust suffering? What do we mean by that? In particular, how does it compare to the suffering that we talked about in lesson two? You re might remember we talked about um, distressing trials and things like that. Well, <clears throat> philosophers tell us that if we're going to talk about God, you have got to address the topic of evil and suffering. And oftentimes they will divide evil and suffering into two categories. They say, first of all, there's natural evil or natural suffering. And that would be things like, you know, you have a tornado or a flood or an earthquake or disease, something like that. They would call that natural evil and suffering. And then the other category is moral. That has to do with the evil that man does to man. Somebody robs you. Somebody shoots an innocent bystander. That would be moral evil. All right, now, we're going to divide things a little differently this morning. We are going to, and it brings us to our first point. Number one, on your papers, we can suffer because of our humanity. We can suffer because of our Christianity. Now, when we did lesson two, we mostly uh, focused on the kind of suffering that is a result of your humanity. All right, we talked about various trials, hardships that we experience because we are humans living in a broken world. You get sick, you, you lose your job, your car breaks down, okay? Those are the kind of things that fall under the first category that have to do with humanity, all right? But we also have the kind of suffering that is a result of your Christianity, okay? People insult you, they malign you, or they slander or do some type of evil against you primarily because you are trying to be light in a dark world, all right? And our, so our focus this morning is going to primarily be on that type of um, suffering on this category. Suffering that is connected to your Christianity. All right, all right, that leads us to our next question on who. Who should expect unjust suffering? Now let's read some passages on this. Find in your Bibles or on your uh, observation worksheets, chapter three, chapter three, verse 14. 3.14 says this, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Okay, now let's turn to chapter 4, verse 12. 4.12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. 
Okay, question. Are these verses being directed to any particular category or group? Like we've seen him do throughout this book. Are they? Are they being directed towards, hey, you slaves? Hey, you wives? What, who, is, is it being, who's it being directed to? All believers. This is to everyone. Okay, so here's our next point. Number two, and this is actually a Bible verse. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, that's right out of um, 2 Timothy. If you are a believer, you can expect to suffer. The normal reaction of the world to Christianity is hostility. Okay, so darkness hates light. So anyone attempting to be Christ-like can expect hostility. All right, now that leads us to our next question. When will we suffer? When will we suffer? All right, look again at verse 4, verse 12. Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised as though if some strange thing were happening to you. He's saying unjust suffering isn't strange, it's normal. Here's our next point, number three. Suffering for faith in Jesus is normal. Normal. The Russian church, <clears throat> they would say that persecution is normal. In fact, they said persecution was like the sun coming up in the east. Now think about that because it is so opposite of the way we Americans think about that. We immediately think, well, this is America. That shouldn't be happening. You know, I'm going to, we're going to pass a law or I'm going to go to the news or we're going to put it on Facebook or do something like that. Let me ask you, are you teaching your children that suffering is normal? Are you teaching your children that it is, is as normal as the sun coming up in the east? Or are you teaching them it should be avoided at all costs? We are really good, and I'm speaking from experience, we are really good at teaching our children to be safe and successful. But we really don't talk much about suffering. If your children are mocked and slandered because they love Jesus, are they going to go silent? Are they going to get combative? Are they going to think that something is wrong with their faith? When the Russian believers were asked, where did you learn to live like this? Where did you learn to die like this? They answered, I learned this from my mother and my father. I learned this from my grandfather and grandmother. Our children need mothers and grandmothers that will teach them the truth about suffering. All right, next. Still thinking about when. Let's talk about when we should not suffer. And let's, for that, start with me in 1 Peter chapter 3, looking at 3 verse 12. 312 says this, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. 
and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Okay, let's go to, sorry, I almost missed this. Let's go to chapter 4, verse 15. 415 says this, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Okay, let's talk about when. When should there not be suffering among you? Well, it should not be a result of your sin. All right, here's your next point. Number four, we are not to be the cause of our own suffering for doing what is wrong. Okay, Peter reminds us that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Sometimes suffering is a form of discipline for when we do something wrong. And Peter says, make sure that doesn't happen. He says, make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer. Okay, check. Or as a thief. Check. Or as an evildoer. Check. Or as a troublesome meddler. What is that doing on this list? Have you ever known someone to complain about, maybe she complains about the way her neighbors treat her or the way her coworkers treat her, and she'll say, people, they don't treat me right, and, and she thinks it's because of her Christianity, that they're doing it to her because she's a Christian, when the reality is she's just really super annoying. <laughs> she's a troublesome meddler. Some of your versions say busybody, and it means one who oversees what belongs to another. All right, Peter is saying, don't let that be the reason you're suffering. Don't be the cause of your own suffering. All right, let's move on. The answer to when, that was the answer, when we are not to suffer. Let's look at verse 17 from chapter 3. We're going to be flipping back and forth between chapter 3 and 4 a lot. Let's look at chapter 3, 17 says, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer. Did you catch that? Not only is unjust suffering normal, apparently it can be the very will of God. We're a lot more comfortable saying things like, God allows suffering. But Peter says here there are times God wills it. Ken Bay. He is a North Korean American missionary. He was arrested for being a spy while visiting North Korea. He had a tourist business where he would take people into Korea to tour the countryside, or at least the part that was open to tourists. But in actuality, he was leading prayer walks through the city. He had made numerous trips into the country, but during his last trip, he accidentally took his computer hard drive, which was filled with names and information about North Korea and everything about his ministry. 
They confiscated the hard drive and accused him of trying to overthrow the government, and they arrested him. He spent two years in prison. It's been recent. You may have seen it in the news. He tells about how he was first put into solitary confinement in the days preceding his trial. And he said while he was there, he had a routine. He would spend three hours a day in worship, three hours a day in prayer, and three hours a day in Bible study. They'd given him his Bible back. And then three hours exercising. And by that, he would just uh, walk in circles around his cell. He said one day he found himself so hungry for this special cold noodle soup that he used to get from a restaurant in the area. He couldn't stop thinking about it. And he said in the next day, it was served to him for lunch. They told him someone had gone to that restaurant and ordered it for him. Now his meals were usually very, very simple and unappetizing. He said a couple days later, he got a craving for a special rice dish. And that night they brought it to him just as if he had ordered up room service. He said he never told anyone he had wanted them. He never even prayed about them. He said such a thing once or twice would have been a coincidence, but he could count at least 40 times that that had happened. He said, God knew the secret desires of my heart and that God was making it very clear to him, this is my will for you. This time of suffering is my will. You see, he had messed up and been careless with his hard drive. And so he thought that's why he was in prison. And God was telling him something very different. He was saying, you are suffering by design. Here's our next point. God's will, number five, God's will is that through much pain and suffering, God's kingdom would be established and advanced. Let's talk about why, why we suffer. And let's do that by looking at chapter 4, verse 1. Why does God allow us to suffer, have unjust suffering? Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. All right, jump down to verse 12, same chapter, says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Okay, over and over, in the book of First Peter, we are reminded that Jesus suffered, that Jesus suffered in the flesh. So what is the primary reason that we suffer while we are aliens on this earth? Well, here's our next point, number six. The primary reason we experience unjust suffering is because our God suffered, leaving an example for us to follow. When my oldest son was a junior in high school, he decided that he wanted to leave Christian school and go to public. 
He was, uh, knew at that point that he had a call in his life to be in full-time ministry, and he pretty much wanted to get started in things. And so he made the transfer to public school, and since he loved basketball, he decided that he would go out for the basketball team. And he was pretty good, so he made the team. And the first year as a junior, uh, he was, most of the time, he was a starter and played full-time. And then by the time he hit his senior year, at the beginning of the year, he was a full-time player and a, and a starter. And then over Christmas break of his senior year, he made the plans to go on a mission trip to Haiti. And he would have to miss the practices that took place over Christmas break. Well, his coach was furious and forbid him to go. His teammates thought he was crazy. Why would you want to go to Haiti? And why would you give up basketball in order to go? Well, he told his coach he was very sorry, but that he would be going, and that he would be gone from the week of Christmas to New Year's. When he came back, he spent the rest of the season on the bench. He went to every practice, he worked as hard as he always had, but overnight, he went from being a starting full-time player to a bench warmer, all because he chose a mission trip over basketball. I would go to every game, and instead of watching my son play, I would watch him sit. He would sit and cheer, and get all excited. He would be the first one up to congratulate his teammates and encourage them. He acted like nothing was wrong. I never once heard the child complain. I, on the other hand, <clears throat> did not take it as well. I would go to the game and fume, I would boil. And then I would get into the car, and first I would yell at my husband, Bob. I would say, you need to go talk to that coach. This is getting ridiculous. <laughs> and he would say, Heidi, we're not doing that. And then I would go to God, and I would say, why are you making him suffer? He's a senior. This is his last time to get to play. Why won't you help him? I mean, he's trying to do the right thing. I mean, for crying out loud, he just spent his Christmas break living in a hut where, where pigs and chickens would come in and out. And whenever he had to clean up, he had to take a jump into the ocean. And not only that, he's been really aggressively trying to have gospel conversations with his teammates. And they are, and they are so potty-mouthed and so disrespectful and hormonal. And he is trying, he is trying to live a holy life in front of them. I, uh, why won't you help him? Why won't you bless him? Well, if I had known First Peter, I would have known the answer to that. Because as I was crying, why won't you bless him? Peter would have been telling me that's exactly what he's doing. Peter says, if you are reviled for the sake of Christ, you are blessed. If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. God was blessing my son. I had a front row seat to every game, but I didn't see it. I thought it was something strange. 
I thought the fiery ordeal was something strange, as if it were happening to me. And I hesitate to use the word fiery now, because now it seems so silly. But in my mind, I had it all worked out. I thought that if my son was pursuing godliness and trying to be righteous at school, wouldn't it make sense that God would bless him and prosper him? I'd read the book of Joshua. He would obey God, and then God would bless and prosper him and make him a great athlete, help him win the game, or at the very least play. And then, of course, he would credit God, and then he would be able to have all these opportunities to talk about Jesus. That's, that's the way I had it in my mind. That's the way I thought Christianity should work for a high schooler. He obeys you, and then you bless him and prosper him in front of his classmates. But God was saying, I don't want them to see his basketball skills. I want them to see my glory. I want them to be able to see something in him that they can't produce on their own. I want them to see the spirit of God. Peter says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I had a front row seat to the spirit of God resting on my son and I was too busy fuming to see it. I wanted God to help him and God was helping him. God was proving my son's faith. He was helping him have gospel conversations. He was helping him leave, live a righteous life. Here's our next point. God, number seven, God uses suffering to prove our faith and bless us. Ken Bay explains the entire time he was in prison, God was telling him, suffering is beneficial for you. Suffering is beneficial for you. Suffering blesses us. Here's number eight on your paper. God uses suffering to display his glory. David Jeremiah puts it this way. Suffering and glory are married. They go together. Helen Rosevere shares that in her darkest hour, when she was being beaten and crying out to God, he brought one word to her mind, privilege. Her suffering was a privilege. Now, why was that? Because God uses suffering to display his glory. All right, let's talk about how. How should we suffer? How are we to deal with unjust suffering. You had a question in your homework about who is your Rosie? How do you deal with the Rosies in your lives? All right, let's turn to chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter 3, verse 8 says this. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. 
right? How are we to suffer in particular? How are we to deal with those that are causing the painful ordeals in our lives? Well, John Piper says that we are born retaliators. Our flesh says retaliate. Our flesh says return evil for in evil and insult for insult. But Peter says you're to do the opposite. In fact, you're to take it one step further. He says you're to give a blessing. You're to be thinking, how can I bless this person? You see, for me, instead of slandering that coach, I should have been thinking, how can I bless this man? All right, number nine. Believers are to suffer and give a blessing instead of retaliating. Joseph's son. He is a Romanian pastor that suffered terrible persecution under communism. He tells about how he would be interrogated for days because they were trying to break him. And there was one interrogator that was especially bad and had a very bad reputation for being so evil. And one day he was being interrogated and he said usually there were two interrogators, but on occasion one might have to leave and excuse himself to use the restroom or something like that. And so on this one day he was alone with this one evil, bad interrogator that had the bad reputation. And the man began to tell Pastor Son, he said, usually when I interrogate people, I can feel the hate that they have for me. But he said, it's different with you. You are a delight to interrogate. I'm really going to miss you. Dr. J. Christy Wilson and his wife, they served in Afghanistan for 22 years. He tells the story about the only Christian church in Kabul. It was building in Kabul. They had been given permission to build it, and then three years later, the Muslim government ordered it destroyed. So soldiers, police, and bulldozers arrived to tear it down. They had been told by the secret police that there was an underground church, and they didn't understand that expression, so they dug down 12 feet underneath the foundation looking for it. And all the while, Dr. Christie writes, that all the while the congregation, instead of opposing them, offered them tea and cookies. We are called to give a blessing and not retaliate. I wonder if there is anyone in your life right now that you need to take some tea and cookies and be a delight. Let's jump to chapter 3. Chapter 3, 13 says this. Who is there to harm you? <clears throat> if you prove zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ Jesus will be put to shame. Ken Bay, after he was arrested then and went through the trial, he was sent to a labor prison camp. 
And at first he thought that would be better than um, solitary confinement. But it turns out when he got there, he was the only prisoner. And so he was forced to work alone farming beans surrounded by guards. And he did not have good health at the time. He said there was a rotation of guards that were always watching him very closely. And as you can imagine, as time went by and he was not being rescued, he became more hopeless about the situation. But he said God told him, I didn't bring you here as a prisoner. I brought you here as a son. And he began to think of his original desire to take the gospel to North Korea. And so he began to think of himself as a missionary. And he said, and to share the gospel with his captors, and he said he became their counselor, and he became their pastor, and that he would listen to them talk about their marriages and their children. And they wanted to know, where does your joy come from? Why are you so happy? You're the prisoner, and we are the guards. Why are you so happy? Where does your joy come from? He says that they would hear rumors of his release and his captors would be sad because they didn't want to see him leave. Remember several lessons ago, we talked about how we are living in a fishbowl. And Peter makes the assumption that when you are suffering, there are going to be people watching you and they're going to have some questions. And Peter says, you be ready. You be ready to tell them about the joy that is within you. You be ready to tell them why it is you don't retaliate. You be ready to tell them why it is you give a blessing instead and why you're zealous for good works. Here's our next point, number 10. Believers should not fear or be troubled, but have hope and be ready to give an account for it. Let's jump to chapter 4, verse 1. Four one says this, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. All right, Peter is telling us, arm ourselves, and that's a military term. All right, he's saying, put on your armor. Pull out your weapon. Now, what's the weapon? The weapon's a purpose. Some of your versions will say attitude or way of thinking. We're to arm ourselves with the same purpose, with the same attitude, with the same thinking. Now, what was that attitude? What was the purpose that we saw in Jesus Christ? Well, to suffer in the flesh and to lay down his life. Peter's saying you are going to arm yourself and have your mind know this same purpose. Part of my problem in the past was that I didn't know the word of God. I was surprised as if something strange were happening to me. I didn't understand that I was to arm myself with the same purpose of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you ladies, how many of you were surprised when childbirth was painful? Were any of you taken by surprise or caught off guard with that? Okay, anyone think, you know, this will be a walk in the park. It'll be like a little mini vacation. I'll go in there and I'll rest. 
No, nobody ever thinks that way. Do you know, when I was pregnant with my third child, every time that I went to the doctor, had anything pregnancy-related, because of the town that I was living in and the hospital there, people would tell me, now you know, that unless there is an anesthesiologist available, you will not be able to have an epidural. And I got to tell you, I heard that over and over and over again. Anytime somebody would see that I was pregnant, I would hear some version of that. I would hear some version of, hey, you realize that unless there's an anesthesiologist sitting in the break room with nothing better to do, bored out of his mind, you're not going to be getting an epidural. <laughs> so what did I do? Well, I had to adjust my thinking. I had, to, I had to begin to think, you know what? I could be doing this the old-fashioned way. All right, look what Peter says. Peter's saying, prepare your minds with the attitude to suffer like Jesus Christ. In the same way, you know, there is different stages of pain in childbirth. We are to, be, we are to have the same attitude of suffering like Jesus Christ did. All right, here's our next point. Number 11, believers should arm themselves with the same attitude Jesus had towards suffering. All right, let's read, pick up at the end of verse 1. We're still in chapter 4. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Okay, what's going on here? Peter is saying that you have had plenty of time in the past to carry out your sinful desires. He's saying you need to break from your sinful past. And yes, that could be painful. That could involve suffering. Ceasing from sin can be painful. Living a holy life can be painful. If you're going to do the right thing, if you're going to be zealous for good works, if you're going to give a blessing instead of retaliating, if you're going to cease from sin, get ready, that could be painful. To watch your child mocked or suffer for his faith and then to be kind to his tormentors. For you to be kind to his tormentors, that could be painful. To be loving and forgiving to someone who is insulting you or insulting your husband or insulting your children, you know what? That can be painful. That could involve suffering. To do the right thing, sometimes that hurts. To lay down your life for another, that can be painful. Our flesh, it wants to retaliate. Or at the very least, it wants the epidural. But Peter says, you prepare your minds. You prepare your minds. You arm yourself with this purpose. Here's our next point. Number 12, prepare your minds to be militant against sin. Conquering sin requires suffering. All right, let's look at two more verses. Let's jump down to 419. Chapter 419 says this. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. 
All right, now I want you to turn back to chapter 2. There's a good verse back there. Chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Are you always going to know why you are suffering? Are you always going to see special miracle stories like Ken Bay? Are you always going to be able to see the glory of God while you're suffering? Maybe. But you might also have seasons of sitting alone in a prison cell. When you are grappling in the midst of suffering, it is a call to faith. It is a call to trust a faithful creator. It is a call to trust a God that judges righteously. God says, even though you may not understand what I am doing, you may not be able to see what I'm doing, can you trust me? Here's our next point, number 13. For believers, suffering is an opportunity to please God through faith. D.A. Carson, he tells the story of his wife going to a prayer meeting that had been arranged for a woman in their church that had cancer. She said the meeting was made up of family and friends, and they were all gathered and praying for healing. D.A. Carson's wife was a cancer survivor, and she too prayed for healing. But then she added, if it is not your will to heal her, help her to suffer well. As it turns out, the family did not much appreciate that prayer. When I heard the story, I realized that I don't think I've ever prayed that for anyone. I, I didn't pray it for myself. I do now. But up until studying this book, it never really occurred to me. I'd always prayed that the suffering would stop. And yet, if we are to be honest, that's not what Peter has been teaching us. Here's our last point, number 14. Peter encourages believers to suffer well. Suffer well. Let's pray. Father God, this is a hard topic. It's not one we're used to. I pray that you'll help us adjust our thinking. I pray that you'll help us to think biblically when it comes to suffering for your glory and putting the gospel on display and help us to be women that suffer well for the glory of God. In the name of Jesus, we pray and ask all these things. Amen.